developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Coming up on the Mark Divine Show. There's no big social implications for no longer being a friend, so it's always something you choose. And, you know, without the obligation, that's why friends, one of the reasons why they make us so happy. But it also means friendship is very fragile. And if we're not proactive and deliberate in supporting it, it can easily fall by the wayside. The research shows that after seven years, 50% of close friends aren't close friends anymore. Hi, I'm Mark Devine, and this is The Mark Devine Show. On this show, I explore what it means to be fearless through the lens of the world's most inspirational, compassionate, and resilient leaders. I speak to notable folks from all areas of life, including martial arts grandmasters, military leaders, high-powered executives, motivational scientists, and authors who are doing incredible work, like today's guest, Eric Barker, author of Plays Well with Other. Eric's the author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, which has sold over half a million copies, translated in 19 languages. He's a former writer for Hollywood, creating movie scripts. And his blog, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, has over half a million subscribers. His work's been covered by the New York Times, the Atlantic Financial Times, others. And he's a sought-after speaker. And his new book, Plays Well with Others, we're going to dive into today. I always like to start kind of just getting a sense for like what were the mental models and the things in your life that shaped you to become fascinated with relationships and writing and, you know, basically doing what you're doing now? Like what's the origin story and was there a pivot or some sort of moment? What got you kind of on this path? Yeah, well, it was funny for me that I, I didn't know anything about social science until, you know, I was in my 30s. I had a big career shift. I went from writing in Hollywood and transitioning out of that. I had a lot of big questions and I, at that point, I'd been exposed to social science. I was looking for answers and I figured, hey, what's what's better than to look at what research says? And yeah, that's when I started my blog. I found that like a lot of the questions, you know, we're all routinely asking ourselves, you know, work has been done on this. It's just kind of stuck in the ivory tower. And, you know, the first book was looking at stress testing the maxims of success and then followed it up with kind of the same format, but for relationships. And I have never been very good at relationships at all. So it was very interesting for me. And, and oddly, you know, it was literally I closed the deal for the book. And then two weeks later, California locked down. I was like, oh, everybody might be needing this book by the time it comes out. So you mentioned you were a writer in Hollywood. Like what inspired you to, to write to begin with? And that experience sounded maybe suboptimal, which led you to ask this question. So what, what was it about that experience that challenged you? I mean, why were you searching for answers? And what questions were you trying to ask that you were searching? Seriously, in terms of what I was going to do next, because I've been focused on you know writing since I was 15. You know, writing movies was fun, but it was really up and down, inconsistent. I did far better than most, but it was still very, you know, unpredictable and inconsistent. And I knew I was transitioning out of it and kind of just trying to figure out what was next for me. And like I said, looking at the research seemed like a, a good way to go. 
did you write original scripts or were you like an adaptation writer? You know, like, here's my book. Let's turn this into a, a screenplay. And anything that we would know? Nothing anybody would know. I did a couple direct-to-video action movies, which nobody really should watch. But I did work on the Aladdin franchise. Those were the direct-to-video Aladdin sequels. But when Disney acquired Pixar, Steve Jobs came in and was like, you're diluting the brand. You should be making these sequels. So like the entire project line got killed. <laughs> he was right, by the way, I think. <laughs> Overall, absolutely. He, he was right. Didn't work out that well for me at the time, but it was probably the smart move in the big picture. So let's talk about your, your blog. Why did you call it Barking Up the Wrong Tree? And what, was, what were you focused on? What were some of the, the insights from your first book by that name? Barking Up the Wrong Tree was you know, just a, kind of a play on my last name. I guess it tied into the fact that a lot of, a lot of what I was finding was counterintuitive in a lot of ways, but primarily it was just a play on my last name. And my URL is in Japanese. I wasn't, probably not the best branding decision, but I started the blog on a, on a lark and it seems to have worked out otherwise. But it was a lot of fun to, to give myself kind of like a quick back the envelope education in that. And then for the first book, I just wanted to look at those maxims of success we all grew up with, like, do nice guys finish last? Is it what you know or who you know? And to kind of go down the rabbit hole, because these are pithy maxims that get passed around, but not sure if they're true. We've all seen exceptions to them. So it was fun for me to look, like I said, having made this big career transition to say like, okay, I was shifting careers. What is true here? What is this? Is the advice we're getting actually accurate or not? And what were some of the most surprising things or interesting things you learned? In terms of the do nice guys finish last, it was really interesting to see that nice guys do finish last, but they also finish first. <laughs> right. And that basically, uh, this was researched by Adam Grant, was what you saw, if you look at it, is the results are bimodal. Basically, the most giving people are disproportionately represented at the top and at the bottom of success metrics, which basically makes sense when you think about it. We all know people who are super giving, super kind, and we feel obligated to them and we go out of our way to help them. We also all are familiar with people who are too giving who end up as martyrs and get taken advantage of. And that's what you see in the research is that people who surround themselves with good people who are smart enough to set some boundaries and protect themselves, those people who are giving do exceptionally well. But people who aren't surrounded by good people and who don't take some steps to make sure they don't get exploited, they don't do as well. I think it's important to really kind of be clear about what the definition of success is. Absolutely. The popular definition might be things that don't actually lead to enduring success, like contentment and peace of mind. And some of those people that might be considered to be at the bottom might actually be very content, even if they've been victimized, because maybe they're not holding on to that. They learn to forgive and they've learned to just you know serve just for the sake of service. No, one of the things I talk about in the book is, is in the end, exactly what you're saying, you know, just having a personal definition of success, because in the modern era, first of all, the office doesn't close at 5 p.m. You can keep working as much as you want. And we have the work-life balance issue. So in the end, you're going to have to set a limit for yourself on how much you work. But to your point, a personal definition, you know, it's kind of like if it's all career and no personal or no family, is that what you in the end are not going to call a successful career, but a successful life? So exactly to your point, it requires some proactive thought on our part because we're, we're very lucky to have freedom and options, but freedom and options means we need to decide for ourselves. So what led you to want to dig into relationships more and 
you know, want to write the book plays well with others, which is a cool title, by the way. And I love that, that you kind of like use these maxims and try to then either prove or disprove them. That's kind of a, a cool social scientist approach to, to writing. You know? I think for me, it was like Freud basically said that basically work and love are the two fundamental aspects of, of people's lives. And with a book about success, I largely covered career. So it seemed natural to kind of look at that. And also, I think the genre of relationship books eh, don't exactly have the best reputation and maybe for good reason um, in that it's often telling people what they want to hear. And I saw an interesting challenge there in the idea of there's probably a lot here that doesn't get discussed or gets glossed over, a lot of uncomfortable truths, because I knew with success, people probably have their perspectives on success, but it's a little bit abstracted versus with personal relationships. People have certain things they want to be true and they don't want to be true. And I knew that this was a ripe area for kind of getting to something a little bit deeper, some of the truths that perhaps aren't talked about for better or for worse. And so that was a really interesting and on personal aspect, I've never been very good at relationships. I've never been very focused on them. And so it was kind of humbling for me to go in there, read a lot of this stuff and be like, oh, yeah, I do that. Oh, yeah, that's not good. Oh, OK. Yeah, you kind of uh, fronted my next question is I was going to say, you know, you're putting a book about relationships out. And so so how are yours? And probably a better way to look at that is how does yours improve as a result of writing this book? It's definitely been an education. It's at least nice to know some of the things I've been doing wrong. There's a tremendous irony in writing a book about relationships during the pandemic. Uh, you know, like, wow, you know, not having good relationships is terrible for you. And here I am locked away, not seeing anyone. You weren't alone there. <laughs> Everyone else. was Exactly. There. That was the only thing that I think uh, kept me going was I'm like, I think we're we're all going to need this. It was tricky. But to come to understand a little bit more specifically in terms of friendships, I saw that what the research showed consistently in terms of deep, enduring friendships, you know, that time and vulnerability are two real critical factors. And I don't think I ever prioritized either one of those. And so all of a sudden, making those the kind of at the top of my to-do list became really important to me post-book. Yeah. I love your style of writing, too, where you just, you know, you've got a, um, you know, some social construct or social research that's validated. You tell a really compelling story around that, either from the researcher himself, for example, John Price, who ended up committing suicide, but who proved that altruism wasn't actually part of the human equation. He proved that we are transactional, and yet he didn't believe it. Right? Even though there, he found a mathematical, he didn't believe it. And so he went out and tried to you know, be altruistic and find it, and to be a friend, I guess, or to be a good person. I thought that was a fascinating story. I've never heard anything like that, nor did I know that you could actually mathematically prove something in a social construct sense like that. I love the storytelling, and uh, some of the, you know, just the points that you elicited are fantastic. Like a friend in need is a friend in need, a friend indeed. You know, I learned that, you know, everyone on average has two friends. And I'm thinking, well, that's interesting. Like, well, how do you define a friend? And you go into that. But my best friend is, is my wife. But then you'd say, well, that's not a friend. That's a family relation. So, I'm, you know, it's a little confusing to me. Like, let's get into this a little bit. What is a friend? What was really interesting to me was exactly that issue, because I think when it comes to a spouse, you know, it's pretty clear when somebody is not being a good spouse. But when somebody's not being a good friend, it's a lot blurrier because there's kind of a hierarchy of friendships. There's not really a hierarchy of spouses. It's not really a contract, but a, a spouse, you kind of have like the social contract. Yeah. A friend, you don't, right? 
And some friends are acquaintances, some friends are best friends. We have different levels with different expectations. And there's no institution backing friendships' interests, you know, a relationship with an employer, relationship with a spouse, relationship with your children. These all have a kind of big institution behind them, kind of pushing their goals. And friendship doesn't really have that. But as I talk about in the book, it's like that actually is kind of what proves friendship's purity in a way, because friends make us happier than any other relationship is what Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman found. And part of that reason is friendship's always a choice, never an obligation. Nobody's going to divorce you. Your employer's not going to fire you. There's no big social implications for no longer being a friend. So it's always something you choose. And, you know, without the obligation, that's why friends, one of the reasons why they make us so happy. But it also means friendship is very fragile. And if we're not proactive and deliberate in supporting it, it can easily fall by the wayside. The research shows that after seven years, 50% of close friends aren't close friends anymore. Interesting. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Devine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. It was interesting when you kind of draw on Aristotle's work and this idea that a friend is someone that you're close enough to that the boundaries between self and others start to blur or dissolve. And so you see yourself in that other individual. That sounds almost like a spiritual equation for growth, right? The dissolution of the self. Yes. <laughs> and to see the sameness in others. I mean, I've used those words in my, my very, you know, show here talking about kind of that's an, that's an outcome of, of the evolution of consciousness. So I can almost say that good friends are, a catalyst for growth in that it's a good thing to have this idea of dissolution of self and see the sameness in others because it, it exists in everybody. Yeah, as Aristotle defined a friend as another self. And I thought that was pretty poetic, but I'm like, ah, this is like quotes on Instagram. And then sure enough, it took us 2000 years to get around to it. But it turns out when you look at the neuroscience, he's right that basically just what you said is that as we grow closer to someone emotionally, our vision of ourselves and our vision of them, like a Venn diagram, increasingly overlaps. And it was crazy to see the results in, in this in terms of, if I ask you, is this quality true of you or is it true of your best friend, you are going to take longer to respond because it takes your brain longer to disentangle who you are from who they are because that overlap. And that basically that is kind of the almost at a biological level definition of empathy where once we start to entangle ourselves, our definition of self with other people. And it was so powerful to me to see a definition of friendship, which in general in mainstream use is so lax and is a Facebook friend a friend? Is your neighbor really your friend? Or it's but here you go, at a near biological level, you were able to test the bounds of friendship. And they, they actually tested it to the degree where you know, when that overlap was strong, when that delay and character distinction was strong, when those friendships dissolved, those were the ones that made people more likely to question, who am I? You know, who am I without this person to have to rethink it? It's really crazy to see that we really are wired that deeply to connect with friends with non-biological relationships like that. Right. And that's, I think, one of the key reasons why I think relationships, whether it's a close friend or spouse or children, are our most advantageous arena or engaging in those relationships 
our most advantageous arena for personal growth because, you know, we get to see some of those things you just described and we're getting immediate feedback and there's a lot of pain involved in those types of relationships often, right? So a lot of people want to run away or feel like, well, I'm, I'm not the person who can do relationships. And what they're really saying is, I don't want to do the work to grow. I mean, potentially, it definitely depends on the specific circumstances, yeah. I, I think. It's interesting to see how different people respond, you know, personality-wise. When you look at, like, the five-factor personality traits, like agreeableness versus disagreeableness, some people are much more attuned to that, some people less so. It's interesting because culture-wise, for most of human history, we've had more of a one-size-fits-all kind of system. I talk about this in the love chapter with marriage and that being very, very defined. And now we have an enormous amount of flexibility. The definition of marriage and other relationships has become kind of in some ways more akin to the loose definition of friendship. You know, the benefits of that are that it allows for customization. The weaknesses are, again, we need to define it for ourselves. We need to shape it ourselves. And that's what I was really shocked by in researching the love and marriage section you know, is that basically the average marriage has kind of gotten worse, you know, on average. It's not a lot of good news here. Marriage doesn't necessarily make you happy. A good marriage makes you happy. But the good news is we now have an unprecedented ability to customize and tailor love relationships, romantic relationships, because they're no longer defined by religion or by state, you know, quite as much. So if we do the work, to your point, then we literally, and this is Eli Finkel, a researcher at Northwestern, we can literally have the best marriages, you know, the best romantic relationships that have ever existed because they're tailored. But to your point, in order to achieve those, we really do need to put in the work. Put in the work is important. Like my wife and I's relationship has gotten so much stronger when we committed to doing the work together. So instead of us like separately doing, you know, having our experience and then make even separately doing our work, like her going to her therapist and her going to her yoga studio and me doing my thing, we actually brought those together and suddenly we found our a relationship accelerating in terms of what we would consider success, you know, connection, growth, intimacy, play. I guess, you know, that's another cliche. Couples who grow together stay together. <laughs> I think there's some truth there. Oh, there's enormous truth there. One of the terms that's actually used in the literature is self-expansion, you know, and those self-expansion activities are what rejuvenates love is that when we don't do those things that make us feel like we're growing, learning. Because that's what's one of the things that's so exciting about early love is, you know, you are meeting this new person. You're learning about them. It's like travel to another country. You're traveling to a new person. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it's like you're learning. You're probably going out on fun dates. You're doing fun stuff together. And the thing is, that needs to continue kind of to your point, you know, with your relationship. It's like if that continues, that's really a positive. If it doesn't, then basically entropy sets in after time, typically after about 18 months. I never thought about it, but I think this principle would also extend to children. If you're a parent who can actually look at your kids at whatever age and say, okay, this is an opportunity for us both to grow together, not me as a parent forcing growth or education or whatever on the kids. This is, you know, dovetails with our discussion with um, learning about that syndrome where love and connection is the only toggle on, right? Is it Willis syndrome or something? WS or William syndrome. William syndrome. Yeah. Where there's an excess of oxytocin and everybody's your friend and that boundary doesn't turn off. No. How do you stumble upon that? And what, you know, what are those people like to be around? Have you ever, I guess you read about it. I don't know if you ever met someone. I've never personally encountered anyone. No, William syndrome is a 
congenital genetic disorder, but in some ways it's actually the most endearing of disorders. People who have it are just basically love others. They have an enormous love and desire and capacity to deal with others. They find people endlessly fascinating. They are incredibly warm, supportive. That sounds like a good problem to have. <laughs> I mean, it is incredibly wonderful from the reading I did, the documentaries I watched. The only issue is that it is also a developmental disorder. So the average IQ of somebody with Williams is about 69. But, you know, oftentimes they have to live elsewhere and to have, you know, support around them. But it's so fascinating to see, like, what do they, they call it an uneven cognitive profile, where on one hand, they have delays and issues. On the other hand, with storytelling, they're frequently known to be, you know, exceptional with music and just their passion and their ability to get along with others. I mean, it gets to the point where it's almost problematic, where as children, they're just like impossibly trusting, which is can be very scary to a parent, you know, of trusting of anyone. But it just shows us in some ways, like what is possible at the extreme end of the distribution. What else was really surprising to you in this book? You know, your first chapter is, is about first impressions. It's titled, Can You Judge a Book by Its Cover? What did you learn there? What are some of the interesting things you're learning? I was shocked to see that when communicating with other people, just how bad we are at reading the thoughts and feelings of others, that basically with strangers, we actually only correctly read the thoughts and feelings 20% of the time. With friends, we hit 30%. And with spouses, we hit 35%. <laughs> Whatever you think is on your spouse's mind, two-thirds of the time you're wrong, which is why the kind of communication you described that you have so well with your spouse is essential because the assumptions we make are more often inaccurate than accurate. We are not great at reading other people. And the interesting aspect is that it seems like we kind of have an upper threshold on that, that we're not going to be Sherlock Holmes, that the best way to understand others is not to try and improve your skills, but to try and get them to send you stronger signals that are more more easily readable. Right. That's interesting because I don't know about you, but I have a ton of friends who are convinced that they can tell a person's character by their first impression or their first meeting. And so this is a pretty common misperception in our culture. Very common. Nicholas Epley, a researcher at the University of Chicago, talks about basically an established cognitive bias called egocentric anchoring, where we just tend to believe that other people think like we do. We've all been on the receiving end of this, where somebody assumes you agree with them, maybe on a contentious issue like politics or religion or something. You're like, no, we're not the same. Or somebody starts sending you uh, stuff or talking about stuff that's of huge interest to them, but has little interest for you. But what we're usually not as cognizant of is we do it too. We tend to assume that others are just like us. And, and certainly human beings as a whole are more similar than they are different. But we tend to make this assumption and our brain shifts into confirmation bias mode where our brains are usually not scientific hypothesis testers. They're much more like prosecuting lawyers who, once we have decided where we're at, we look to confirm the evidence that supports our beliefs and to dismiss the stuff that doesn't. I'm sure you've done this, but if you want a really interesting few hours wasted, just go down the rabbit hole of researching cognitive bias. There's a great graphic, you know, if you just research cognitive bias codex, I think is what they call it. You know, and whoever put this together, I, I wish I knew his name, I give him credit, but it's like this big round kind of wheel and it shows all these biases, there's like hundreds of them grouped by 
kind of major category. And you look through these and you're like, oh my God, yeah, there's that. And I've got that. I've got, I do that. I do that. I do that. <laughs> so you recognize that we're pretty much just this big conditioned ball of biases. The framing bias reinforces confirmation bias. You know what I mean? And similarity bias reinforces confirmation bias. Everything kind of, it seems like designed to fit things into our view of reality. And then we project that out there and we get back through projection bias, kind of what we put out. We tend to think everything is exactly the way we see it. There was one researcher I remember who found when discussing this that people always responded the same way, which is, oh, yeah, I know people who do that. I mean, I don't, but I, I know other people who have that bias. So what he started doing was beginning his lectures with visual illusions, where it looks like the two lines are different lengths, but they're actually the same length. The old lady, young lady illusion. Yeah, exactly. To basically show people it's like, no, like you make these mistakes, too. They're kind of wired into you. And after showing people you make these errors, people were much more open to the idea of, whoa, he caught me again with that other one. Hey, wait a second. Maybe we all do this. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Devine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. That's a big part of my training. I still try to get people to expand their contextual awareness to become aware of the conditioned reactions and also the biases that are driving their behavior so that they can pause. In the SEALs, we use the, the acronym PBTA, pause, breathe, think about this, and then you know construct the most effective action that you can think of in the moment that's going to lead you towards success and then act on it and then you know reset, pause, breathe, think. And a lot of that is to just question the assumptions that you're making. It's a huge, huge part of it. In the book, I talk about first impressions. And unlike reading people's thoughts and feelings, you know, in the moment, first impressions, we about reach about 70% accuracy. We're better at sizing people up the first time out. The only issue is the old saw is true. It's like, you know, first impressions are sticky. Once we kind of make them, they tend to stick around. And one of the ways to address that is exactly what you're talking about, which is we need to realize that our assumptions are just that assumptions. You know, 70% accurate at what level? I can look at you when you, you know, Zencaster pulls up and I can make some assumptions. I'm like, okay, yeah, you're male, you're middle-aged, you're white, right? You know, you're an author because you wrote a book. So I'm like, oh yeah, I sized you up pretty good. But I know nothing about your beliefs and, you know, your most deepest held, cherished concepts. And I could project those onto you because I have some similarities, you know, in terms of age and race and gender and all that. But again, that's all projection. Or assumption. Most of the research has been around what's called thin slicing, which is they will basically record someone, have no audio, and they'll show subjects, you know, a video recording of, say, a teacher in a classroom. And people make their assumptions, which are, you know, immediate, largely unconscious. And usually for a number of characteristics, most importantly, competency, people are eerily accurate. Like I said, 70%, which is far from 100 but still better than a coin toss, people are able to look with no audio, just a you know few minutes, sometimes even shorter, and be able to say, yes, this person's pretty good at their job. No, they're not. For certain personality characteristics, especially like extroversion, conscientiousness, their gut instincts in that arena are definitely better than chance. I wonder how much of that are the social cues that have been programmed, you know, so the, the dress, the mannerisms, et cetera. 
because they've done studies, you know, you take someone who's like a world-class concert violinist and put them on the street in rags and people just walk by them. The 70% accuracy falls apart when you take away all those social cues. Oh, well, I think that probably has more to do with people not knowing anything about classical music. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. I love it. Yeah. Probably right, too. The point is that it's very, it's complicated, right? And Kahneman, who you referenced earlier, Thinking Fast and Slow, man, he's, is a brilliant book. And I, he won the Nobel Prize for it because he really helps you understand how involved, you know, what he calls system one thinking is in quick reactionary judgments that we make and all the biases that are pre-programmed. I mean, basically, it's shortcuts for our brain. You know, it's to be able to respond either quickly or fuel efficiently because our brains can get pretty lazy. I mean, that's one of the things I talk about in terms of the issue of reading people is that we do much, much better when there's stakes. And if we can artificially create those stakes, that's great. But people are, for instance, better people readers on first dates. Why? It's like, okay, all of a sudden there are stakes. You have something to gain, something to lose. Versus in the average conversation, our brains kind of idle along because there's not much to be won or gained here, you know, versus once our brains know, hey, it's game day, this is important, all of a sudden, you know, performance goes up because we can't, or at least our brains don't want to maintain that high level of performance all the time. You can't sprint for miles. So a good thing to do anytime we're trying to get more accurate in terms of people reading is to create some stakes, create some gain or loss so that we're a little bit more focused. That actually ties into kind of the next subject I want to dig into, and it has to do with healing and the placebo effect. You have some really interesting stories around that. And I think what you just said is part of it. Like, why does a placebo work? It's because if you've got a high stake situation, you know, regarding your health, your belief in the person or the healing modality has a big impact of whether it works or not. What did you learn there in your, in your digging into the placebo effect? I mean, it was fascinating to me that so much of pain is perception. And that issue that when people go to a therapist and they fill out the intake form, if you survey them, they already report feeling symptomatic relief. Right. And what that has to do with is just the issue of, are we alone? Are we getting help? Because we're by our nature a social tribal species. And that feeling of I'm alone, no help is coming, the alarms start going off. When we feel lonely, our brain scans for threats twice as fast. And that issue of once we know there is help, it's good help, it's competent help, this is investment, all of those things increase the placebo effect. When a doctor is more interested in you, when they ask questions, when it seems professional, if I give you a placebo pill, a placebo injection actually offers more relief. Now, they're both fake. They're both placebos, but the injection seems serious. Right. It seems intense. And it's, oh, give me the good one. That kind of feeling. But a lot of the placebo effect comes from that issue of we are being helped. Someone is caring for us. That person seems competent. You know, we're in good hands. To think of pain less as an issue of, that is caused by the physical damage and more as it's the like the oil light in your car where it's like get service. And once you're getting help, that gets dialed down because it's like, hey, help has arrived. I don't need to scream at you anymore. You're going to get your oil refilled. Everything's going to be OK. But it's really powerful because, you know, medicine has become, you know, there's not as much uh, attention from doctors, not as much bedside manner. 
And what this research shows is that that really matters. It makes a difference. When a doctor shows interest in you and cares, that actually provides legitimate belief. A lot of this came from the story of Ted Kapchuk, who did a lot of the research here. And that's what he found, is that to optimize relief, you want to optimize the placebo effect. Because it's really critical that the drug alone only does so much. A lot of it comes from the perception, the handling, and the presentation of the drug. I find it interesting that even if you give someone a placebo and you label it a placebo, it still has a similar effect. It's the power of the subconscious mind right there, right? It's that issue of getting help, you know, where it's like, we are being tended to. I mean, if you think about any situation where when you're alone and in pain versus when you're with your own spouse and in pain, you're going to feel better. Maybe it's not going to relieve the most serious of pain, but you are going to feel better. Somebody's here. I'm not alone. Somebody's looking out for me. That's really critical. And yes, the research is pretty clear on open label placebos, placebos that are labeled placebos. They help. You can actually buy them on Amazon. You know, it's interesting because that shows that what's happening is happening at a beyond conscious level. We're not just talking about, oh, I got a placebo, so therefore I should feel better. Okay, I feel better. And you're tricking yourself. I mean, literally, your brain is sending some signal that either takes your mind off of that pain or shuts down or mutes the pain receptors because there is an actual mitigation of pain or the, whatever the symptoms might be. No, it's totally fascinating to see like all the ins and outs of pain. It's a fascinating subject and very little understood. But, you know, there is the signal from the part of your body. But then there's also the emotional component, which gets looped into a, a mix of sorts. When we're stressed out, pain is more severe. You know, when we're cool about it, when we have an understanding, we feel we have a control over it. Again, that mental mix, the signal is still coming that your leg hurts, but your brain says, we've got this under control, we can handle it. You know, you've got the issue of the placebo effect actually works via endorphins. You know, is that if you give someone Narcan, which is, you know, the drug that's used to treat overdoses, uh, the placebo effect stops working. You know, so it is actually happening via, you know, endorphins. It's interesting to see that the brain is choosing when you're getting help, when you're getting assistance, the brain is turning on the endorphin spigot saying, okay, I get it. I got the signal, but don't worry. It's what's okay. It's being dealt with. I'll paraphrase this. This is a statement you make that would make Brene Brown's hair curl a little bit. Not being open and vulnerable doesn't just kill friendships. It can also kill you. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Because it seems kind of one of those counterintuitive things, right? Yeah. Oh, no, this is research by Robert Garfield at University of Pennsylvania, where when we are not open and vulnerable in our relationships, uh, prolongs minor illnesses, increases chance of a first heart attack, and increases the chance that that heart attack will be lethal. I mean, at one level, we need the stress relief, you know, but at another level, if you're not sharing your problems, people can't help you. You know, people can't offer assistance. We need to be able to share these things. It's tricky. You know, another study, uh, I found really interesting was uh, Robin Dunbar's professor at Oxford, you know, looked at all the research and said, okay, one year after a heart attack, what determines whether you're alive or not? And, you know, tons of factors, obviously, exercise, nutrition, et cetera. But only two that really stood out really mattered. One was, do you smoke? And number two was, how many good friends do you have? It's crazy. It's interesting also because most guys that I know aren't open and vulnerable. It's not our norm, right? We're not taught it. We're not modeled it. And so that's a, it's an opportunity, I guess, to grow or to learn how to do that. There's no doubt. I mean, the research is consistent that, you know, women are better about maintaining the friendships, about being open and vulnerable. 
it's tough for a lot of guys. Their number of friendships really shrinks, you know, as they get older and opening up a little bit. Like I talk about in the book, I call it the scary rule. I say, you know, if it feels scary, say it, but start small. Don't confess to any murders immediately, but it's like to open up a little bit. There are many areas of life where it can be less threatening. You can talk about, hey, I'm not making as much progress in the gym as I'd like. Hey, maybe I'm having some trouble in my marriage. Hey, maybe I'm having some trouble at the office. Whichever of those is less threatening, there are many different facets of the diamond to just open up and express that because it's so powerful. This was what I was shocked at how powerful it is in deepening our friendships. Because basically, by expressing something that makes you look bad, by expressing something that isn't very flattering, you are handing the other person a, a weapon. You are telling them, you could hurt me. And that is the most powerful expression of trust to say, hey, you could use this to make me look bad, but I trust you not to. And what the research found, Diego Gambetta's research, is that basically the most powerful way to build trust in another person is to first show them trust. And then if they reciprocate, escalate, this is how you deepen you know, trust between you and your friends. Yeah, I love that. There's probably an app for that to help guys. Uh, <laughs> if not, we should develop it. <laughs> Eric, what's next? I mean, you're done with this book. When's it due out? It's out now. Okay. I'm still doing the newsletter and I'm promoting the book, but we'll see. I mean, Freud only had two categories, you know, work and love. And I, I kind of covered both of those. So I may need a new model by I which a I new develop. Category, right? Exactly. Because uh, I've, otherwise I've exhausted this and I'm, I'm not in my elderly years yet. So I'm, I'm going to need to find somebody who's got a, a list of three. Work, relationships and health. And finances. There's four. There's two more categories that you can do. <laughs> those are the big four. And exactly. To your point, I think those are two other things that people have big illusions about. 100%. That's awesome. Eric, it'd be great to meet you in person someday. And I, I appreciate the work you're doing. And uh, I love your style. And this has been a really fun, fun conversation and very informative. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me, dude. This is, I really appreciate this. It's been great. All right, my friend. Take care. So reach out. What's your social handles and website? Where would you like people to find you and connect with you? All my social handles are Bacadesio, which is really hard to B A K A D E S U Y O is my Twitter <laughs> and my Instagram. If people go to ericbarker.org, they can find the website. Got it. And plays well with others wherever books are sold. Yeah, I look forward to talking again and digging into whatever your next domain of expertise is. <laughs> if you're ever down in San Diego, look me up. I'd love to see you. Absolutely, man. That's fantastic. Thank you. All right, Eric. Take care. Well, that was a super fun episode with Eric Barker, author of Plays Well with Others. Show notes and transcripts are up on my site, markdevine.com. You can find a video up at the YouTube channel, markdevine.com slash YouTube. If you want to reach out to us, propose a guest or ask me questions, then you can find me on Twitter at markdevine and on Instagram and Facebook at realmarkdevine. Also have a LinkedIn page, which is pretty easy to find. If you're um interested in my newsletter, Divine Inspiration. It comes out every Tuesday where I provide a synopsis of the podcast, a blog that I've, uh, I write every week, a habit or a practice, a book I'm reading, all sorts of stuff like that. Things that might be valuable to you, go to markdivine.com and subscribe and uh, refer to your friends. Super appreciate my incredible team, Jeff Haskell and Jason Sanderson and Jeff Torres and Melinda Hershey. They help produce this show, uh, bring incredible guests to you every week like Eric. And reviews and ratings are extremely valuable. So if you haven't reviewed 
or rated the show, please consider doing so at Apple or wherever you listen. It's very helpful for others to find the show because it will show up in their search results. If we have more ratings, we get more reviews. So thanks very much. I, my goal is 5,000 five-star reviews by the end of this year. world is changing fast. Technology is exploding. We're in the age of exponential growth and the conceptual age where creativity and connection are one of our most valuable skills as humans. So it's incumbent upon us to develop those skills and to pay it forward by teaching others and showing up as more inclusive and more whole. And that's my mission. So thanks for being part of that journey and thanks for supporting the Mark Divine Show. Till next week, play well with others. See you then. Yeah.